So we are less than a day away from Yom Kippur. It's a day which uh, I would say it needs their introduction. That's actually true. The Masechta that deals with Yom Kippur is called Masechta's Yuma. And Yuma literally means the day. And doesn't tell us which day. And the Marshal explains <coughs> that when it comes to Yom Kippur, one doesn't need to elaborate. It's the day. The day of the year. Where we get kapara and, and we start again. And so, as we are at the, the threshold of the day, <coughs> I'd actually like to start by referring to something that we read on Shabbos. The Shabbos Shuvah. And Shabbos Shuvah, as we know, gets its name from the Haftarah. Shuva Yisrael at Hashem Elokecha. Ki choshalta ba'avonecha, that's the Navi Hoshea in Treosar, <coughs> exhorts the Jewish people to return to Hashem. Choshalta ba'avonecha, you've stumbled in your sin. And there's a very uh, intriguing medrash with regards to this Haftarah. <coughs> and the medrash relates to a much earlier episode, prehistoric, we could say, that namely the tshuva of Reuven. There's much to discuss in terms of the tshuva of Reuven. Uh, what exactly did he do wrong? The way the Pasuk describes it, the way the Gemara explains it, according to the Gemara in Maseches Shabbos, when uh, Rachel died and Yaakov's bed had been in Rachel's tent for, for as long as she was alive, and when she died, Yaakov moved his tent into his bed into Bilhah's tent. And Bilhah was the handmaiden of Rachel. <coughs> Reuven took offense on his mother's behalf. He felt that was uh, a slight to her honor. And he moved the bed from Bilhah's tent, where Yaakov had put it to his mother's tent. In retrospect, he saw that that was incorrect. He paid dearly for it, as we know. Pachas Kamayim. He lost a lot over that uh, episode. But be that as it may, he did shuva. The source for the idea that Reuven did shuva is in Parshas Vayeshev. It says, Vayashav Reuven el Habor. Reuven returned, <coughs> even though we're not told that he'd ever left. And that's why Chazal explained that Vayashav is an expression of shuva. And the Medrash proceeds. Elaborates. Amar Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Hashem said to Reuven, "Me olam lo chata adam lefanai va'asa No one ever sinned before me and did shuva. And here you are, ve'ata patachta b'tshuva tchila. You have opened. You are the first one to really do tshuva. Chayecha by your life, your reward will be sheben bincha. Your descendant will be the first. Novi to open the topic of tshuva, and that is Hoshea. Hoshea ben Be'eri, <coughs> descended from Reuven, who says, Shuva Yisrael at Hashem Elokecha. So in brief, what the Medrash is saying is that Reuven was the first person to do tshuva. He introduced tshuva to the world, and in reward for that, his descendant Hoshea would be the first one to introduce the idea of exhorting the Jewish people to do tshuva. <coughs> the only problem with this medrash is absolutely everything that it says, from beginning to end, for the simple reason. The first thing the medrash says is that Reuven was the first person to do tshuva. We have traditions from Chazal that that is not the case. I mean, is it a machlokas? <coughs> the first people to do tshuva were among the first people who ever lived. There's a famous medrash in, in Tehillim that Adam met Cain and he asked Cain, what happened? What happened to you? Manasa What happened in your judgment? And Cain said to him, Asisi tshuva vehispasharti. I did tshuva and I got a kind of a compromise. I got clemency. Pshara or poshrim. <clears throat> my, din, my did went from being 
boiling hot to lukewarm. His specialty. Says the Medrash, Amar Adam. So Adam said, that's the power of tshuva. He should also do tshuva. And the Medrash concludes that Adam composed the song Miz Morshir Leyom HaShabbos. According to the Medrash, Miz Morshir Leyom HaShabbos is an Adam Harishon original. It's one of his contributions to Sefer Tehillim. And so the Medrash's assertion that Reuven was the first one ever to do tshuva it requires our inspection. We are aware of people earlier than that who did tshuva. <coughs> and what about the second part of the Medrash, which says that Reuven's descendant Hoshea will be the first prophet to exhort the Jewish people to tshuva. Is that, is that so? Was there any prophet before Hoshea who did not exhort the Jewish people to tshuva? You could say the more accurate way to phrase that question is, was there any prophet prior to Hoshea who did not exhort the Jewish people to do tshuva? Beginning with Moshe Rabbeinu, continuing with Yehoshua, it's a common theme. And therefore, the Medrash requires our understanding from beginning to end. Ein ha-midrash hazeh omer ela darsheni. And there are many, many explanations of this Medrash. It's probably fair to say that half the Shabbos Shuvadrashas in history, I, I believe, uh, had this Medrash somewhere uh, in there, and everyone has what to say. But the Ksav Sofer explains as follows. It is true. Reuven was not the first one to do tshuva. But let us ask a simple and important question. When does a person need to do tshuva? What is a situation that requires a person to do tshuva? I think we all understand that (coughs) a person never wants to be in a situation where they have more demerits than merits, more sins than mitzvos. If one would ever be in that situation where the balance is tipped in uh, in, in the scale of demerit, they're in trouble. They are in, as they would say here in Eretz Yisrael, heimbeminus, which doesn't mean heresy, but for some people is no less frightening. They're in negative. And so there's no way to get out of it except for tshuva. It's clear and understood. But what if a person is not in minus? What if they're in plus? They're not in the red. They're in the black. Doing outstandingly well by all accounts. However, they have certain things that they've done wrong. Minimal to be sure. Possibly even bottle b'shishim. Less than one in sixty. Do they need to do tshuva? That is the question. And that question was never addressed before Reuven. It's true. Reuven was not the first one to do tshuva in our history. Adam did it, Cain did it. But look at Adam's tshuva. Look at his situation. Adam had one commandment that he violated. So he is zero for one. That is to say, he, has, he is in demerit. It's clear he needs to do tshuva to get himself out of that situation. Similarly, Cain. <coughs> Did Cain have uh, merits? Perhaps. But nothing that can uh, outweigh, shall we say, the, the, the demerit of, of murdering his brother. Therefore, should you wonder, did Cain and Adam need to do tshuva? The answer is a resounding, of course they did. But it doesn't yet tell us the full scope of what it means to do tshuva and who needs to do tshuva. That (coughs) had to wait until we come to Reuven. Reuven is one of the shvatim. His name is on the Choshen Mishpat. He remains one of the shvatim with all of his outstanding merits. There is this problematic incident with Bilbel Yutzviyei Aviv, who mixed up the the bed of his father, put it from this tent to that tent. It wasn't correct. It wasn't right. But I don't think we'd say that Reuven on on the scale of merit is in demerit. I think it's fair to say he has hundreds and thousands of merits, 
and a, and a demerit. And even that demerit was, was, he only meant it for good. If anyone would ever be forgiven for feeling that they don't need to do tshuva because on balance they're okay, on balance they're in plus, it would be Reuven. And what does Reuven say? I still need to do tshuva. <coughs> because no amount of mitzvahs that I've done will address the Aveira that I did as well. And to have even one Aveira to one's name, if you can get rid of it, and Tshuva says you can, is unacceptable. In that regard, Reuven really did open up what it means to do Tshuva. Because what Reuven is saying is, there is no sin that is too great that Tshuva can't help. But there is also no sin that is too small that Tshuva isn't required. The goal is 100% erasure of Averis. And, and if a person even only has one Avera, it's one too many. That's Ruven's message. It's very interesting. <coughs> we say in Pirkei Ovos, and, and there's a certain, I think, uh, assumption that we make, but only if, uh, until we look closely at the words, because the Mishnah talks about the, the, the angels that a person creates uh, when they do mitzvahs and when they do averas, what do they say? What does the Mishnah say? Kola osa mitzvah achas. A person who does a mitzvah, konolo praklit echad. He acquires a praklit. <coughs> what does praklit mean? We'll get back to that in a moment. Vekola osa avera achas. But if a person does an avera, konelo kategor. We're familiar with the concept of kategor. An accusing angel. We say in Avinu Malkenu, Sesompios Mastinenu Umekatrigenu. So some angels are create a mitzvah creates one type of angel, and Avera creates another type of angel. But what's interesting is we're familiar with the idea of Kategor. If you're if you've heard around the famous expression, Ain Kategor Nasanegor. The prosecution <coughs> can never become the defense. That means, I think, the, the Pavlovian opposite word association, antonym for kategor, is sanegor. You say kategor, I say sanegor. What's the opposite of, uh, what's the, the counterpart to uh, prosecution is defense. And yet the Mishnah, although it says if one does an avera, he creates a kategor, an accusing angel, it doesn't say that if he does a mitzvah, he creates a sanegor. If we were asked to fill in the blank, we might have written in Sanegor, because we know a thing or two. But the Mishnah doesn't say that. It says he creates a praklit. What is the difference between a Sanegor and a praklit? The difference is, Sanegor is defense. A defense defends against the attacker. <coughs> a praklit is not a defense. It's not a defendant. It's an advocate. The kategor accuses and a praklit advocates for you, but it never defends you against the accusation. And that's really what the Mishnah is saying. One shouldn't think that if a person did an Avera, so let him do a mitzvah and the two will cancel each other out. That the mitzvah will counteract the Avera and the whole thing will go away. Neither of them go away. Because the mitzvah speaks in your favor, but it never addresses the Avera that speaks in your disfavor. That is why the Mishnah goes on to say, Tshuva umasim tovim ketris It is only Tshuva that can address head-on a misdeed that a person has done. Good deeds will never counter misdeeds. Will never erase misdeeds. <coughs> and that's, it's, it's a certain mindset that certainly we need, perhaps always we need, but as we approach Yom Kippur, all the more so. There is a, a famous uh, section in the Gemara, it's famous because it's the beginning of the Sefer Tanya, for those who at least made it through to page one. Um, Tanya, how does it begin? The, the famous uh, oath that they administer to the person before, before he's born. <coughs> Most people advocate fetal rights. It's only the Gemara that speaks about fetal obligations. He's made to take a Shavua. And what is the Shavua? Mashbian Oso. He is adjured to take an oath. Tehit Sadik Va'al Tehi Rasha. 
be a tzaddik and don't be a rasha. And it, it, it goes on. But some of the Mepharshim <coughs> are quite uh, uh, puzzled by the phraseology of this oath. Be a tzaddik and don't be a rasha. Because presumably, if you're a tzaddik, then subsumed within that is that you're not a rasha. Because the two are opposites. So why does it need to spell it out? Be a tzaddik and don't be a rasha. <coughs> one of the great darshanim of pre-war Europe, one of the great poskim also of pre-war Europe, Rabbi Aaron Volkin, that's uh, the Rav of Pinsk, he has the 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 chuvas, the uh, Aaron, the base Aaron on the Masechtas, and we have drushes from him Mitzach Aaron. And he explains again: if the question is, if the if the oath begins be a tzaddik, why does it then continue and don't be a Russia? Says Ravolkin, the reason is because sometimes <coughs> a person might think that they can be a Russia. Because they're a tzaddik. The very notion that they can be a rasha is financed by the fact that they are a tzaddik. As if to say, if they weren't a tzaddik at all, they can't afford to be a rasha because then they're a bad person. But, but what if they are a tzaddik? Mainly. So that can allow them maybe to be a bit of a rasha because they're mainly a tzaddik. In other words, if they're a tzaddik from nine to five, so they can afford to be a Russia during lunch break. Or from Sunday to Friday, <coughs> so they can have the weekend off. So, so what the, what, it's a, a very beautiful idea, and very, it really rings true in the sense of how people might, might think. <coughs> when it says, be a tzaddik and don't be a Russia, it means be a tzaddik and don't let the fact that you're a tzaddik allow you to be a Russia. Because neither will, never, will ever counteract the other. The only thing that deals with Averus is tshuva. <coughs> and this is the message of Reuven's tshuva. He has a thousand merits. And one minor demerit, says Reuven, I need to do tshuva. None of those thousand merits, and even all of them put together, will not address that one demerit. Only tshuva will. <coughs> and in that regard, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to him, no one ever did tshuva before. Not in that way. And moreover, as the Medrash continues, Hashem said to Reuven, your reward will be <coughs> that your descendant will be the first one to exhort the Jewish people to do tshuva. Who is that? Hosea. We asked Hosea, the first one to exhort the Jewish people for tshuva, beginning with Moshe. There wasn't a, there wasn't a prophet who did not exhort them. But the answer, says the Ksav Sofa, is the same. All of those Nevi'im throughout history, they're talking about the tshuva of the Jewish people when <coughs> the people are in such dire straits, they're in such a terrible matzav, if they don't do tshuva, they'll be finished. So it's true they need to do tshuva, but it's not yet Reuven's message of tshuva. Reuven's message of tshuva comes from his descendant Hosea. And what does he say? Shuva Yisrael ad Hashem alukecha. Do tshuva. When? What's grounds for tshuva? Ki chashalta ba'avonecha. You have stumbled in your sin. <coughs> Avonecha is the singular. One sin. Says Hosea, whatever else good things you've been doing, if you have one sin, it's a stumbling block for you. And it's, it's grounds for tshuva. And that is exactly Reuven's message resonating throughout the generations and finding expression in the prophecy of Hosea. And the reason why I, I uh, open with this discussion, even though uh, we're already past Shabbat Shuvah, is because it's important to appreciate how Shabbat Shuvah and Hosea's message really does form a bridge, I would say, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. A shift, you could say, <coughs> between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. How so? Because on Rosh Hashanah, our focus is on our judgment for the coming year. And there... <coughs> We really do focus more, or uh, are mindful of the, the scale of merit. We, we 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 talk about it in that way. We think about it in that way. <coughs> On balance, how is a person? Are they deserving of a good year? If they have majority good deeds, they're deserving of a good year. So the definition of success of mitzvahs versus averus on Rosh Hashanah is not the same definition of success on Yom Kippur, and we need to shift our mindset. On Rosh Hashanah, 
How many Averas <coughs> are, 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 are too many on Rosh Hashanah? The answer is, if you have more Averas than mitzvahs. That could tilt your judgment in a bad way. But when we ask the very same question, how many Averas is too many on Yom Kippur? The answer is one. And Hoshea, in a sense, transitions us from looking to get a good din for the year, which is based on majority, to looking to, to rid ourselves of Averas, which is based on an absolute zero. That's really what we're looking to leave Yom Kippur with. <coughs> it's a very worthwhile way of, of defining the mission that we have for, for the special day ahead. I wanted to talk about uh, one of the famous uh, fixtures, we could say, of Yom Kippur, and that is the idea of asking people for mechila. It's a simon and shulchan aruch in Arachayim Simen Tafresh Vav that one should appease one's fellow on Erev Yom Kippur if there's any outstanding grievances, so on and so forth. It's a major part of Yom Kippur. Where does it come from? What is the, what is the source? Actually, it is the final Mishnah in Maseches Yuma. And there the Mishnah says, Averus ben Adam Lamakam. In the area of between man and God, Yom Kippur Mechaper. Yom Kippur will get you Kapara. Treat, do the right thing by Yom Kippur, you'll get Kapara. <coughs> but Averus ben Adam Lachavera. Between man and man, if there's grievances and offenses, ain Yom Kippur Mechaper. Ad Sheyiratse Es Chavera. Yom Kippur will not atone until he appeases his fellow. Where does it come from? How do we know? The Gemara provides a drasha. It's the most famous posuk that relates to Yom Kippur. We say it the whole time on Yom Kippur. On this day, Hashem will atone for you to purify you. From all of your sins before Hashem, you will be purified. And what is the meaning of this exposition? How does it get us to the halachic result? Before Shem explain that what the Pasuk is saying is, You are assured for purity from all of your sins before Hashem, because that's just between you and Him. But the implication is, but there's another realm of Averus, which is not just Lifnei Hashem. It's between you and someone else, and there you are not immediately assured of Kapara. You'll need to do something else. You'll need to, to appease your fellow. So the, the, the drasha <coughs> is saying that Mikol Hashem, if it's between you and Hashem, Titaru, Purity assured, atonement assured, implying lifnei the other person, not necessarily. You've got to apologize, you've got to make the peace. <coughs> and that teaches us <coughs> pardon me, that there is an obligation to, for a person to, to seek out those that they have grieved and to, and to apologize and, and to make the peace. What about the aggrieved party? Are they obligated to forgive? That's an interesting question. One could say no. In other words, the, this person is obligated to ask for mechila. Are you obligated to, to grant mechila as an obligation? Maybe not. As a recommendation, you certainly should. Firstly, it's good, menschlichkeit, <coughs> assuming that, as, as the poskim say, that you do not surmise that this will just encourage them to, to abuse you even more and more because they know that you'll for, forgive them uh, endlessly. But if the, if the apology is sincere, it is considered, highly recommended, that you should find it within yourself to forgive them. Why? Because we ourselves are looking for forgiveness at this time. And as we know, Shamayim works on a system of mita keneged mita, measure for measure. Shamayim operates to a person, often the way a person operates towards those around them. If a person is forgiving, nothing augurs better for achieving their own forgiveness and attaining their own forgiveness than then they themselves being a forgiven person. <coughs> so if there's ever anything of all the recommended practices leading into Yom Kippur, to be forgiving is certainly very high on that, 
on that list for reasons that we said. Measure for measure. Forgiveness below begets forgiveness above. But what's interesting is, the way the halacha is described is one should seek out their friend and appease them on Erev Yom Kippur. So let's ask a simple question. Does that mean specifically Erev Yom Kippur? Should you wait for Erev Yom Kippur? What if the offense was committed six months earlier? Is it, is it just something that one should put to the side until Erev Yom Kippur? What about those intervening six months? <coughs> and indeed, there are many poskim who uh, are of the uh, opinion and assert that Erev Yom Kippur doesn't represent the time that you shouldn't wait for it, Erev Yom Kippur. It's just a time that you can't wait any longer. Erev Yom Kippur is not the optimum time to apologize. It's the final time to apologize. But if the grievance occurred six months earlier, the time to do that is six months minus one day, the very next day. Erev Yom Kippur is just final clearance. Everything must go by Erev Yom Kippur. But the idea of waiting for Erev Yom Kippur? Why push off something if I can do it earlier and make the peace? <coughs> However, as true as it is that some people say this, one should reconcile as quickly as possible and not wait till Erev Yom Kippur, there are a number of, of instances in the Gemara where we see that the personalities there did wait for Erev Yom Kippur. It seems like there is an idea, even if it happened uh, weeks ago or months ago, to wait for Erev Yom Kippur. And the question, of course, is why wait? One could say, apologize now, avoid the rush. <coughs> one could say, on a, a, a Balabatish level, that, that maybe the reason why people wait till Erev Yom Kippur is because Erev Yom Kippur is when their apology is most likely to be accepted which actually is very reasonable. As if to say, people are at their most forgiving on Erev Yom Kippur. If you contact them on any other day of the year, you might get a no. The door might be slammed in your face over the phone. But <coughs> if you ask the very same uh, request on Erev Yom Kippur, you might get a better hearing. And maybe that's reason to wait. It's a shas hakosher. It's an ace rotson in terms of, of actually securing forgiveness. That could be. But I would like to, to raise, in a sense, a deeper question on this whole issue of making the peace on Erev Yom Kippur. And, and again, just to remind ourselves, the Mishnah says this in the end of Yuma, Yom Kippur won't work until you ask for forgiveness. It's learned from a Pasuk in, about Yom Kippur, Lifnei Hashem Titaru, etc. and so forth. And it all sounds amazing. But one person is, is bothered by all of this. And that is Rabbi Yitzhak Hutner in the Pachad Yitzhak. And he is often bothered by things when everyone else is, is prepared to go home. That's when he just gets started. <coughs> and the problem, uh, says Rabbi Hutner, is that seemingly this entire lesson is redundant. The drosha, the exposition from the Pasuk is redundant. The Mishnah is redundant. I would have known it myself, and here's why. We already know two things, and when you put them together, you already know the Mishnah's message. What are those two things? Number one, we know <coughs> Yom Kippur only works if a person does tshuva. If you sail through Yom Kippur without a thought of tshuva at all, it doesn't help you. That's point number one. For Yom Kippur to work, it requires tshuva. Okay. Point number two, for tshuva to work, if it's been Adam Lechaveiro, you have to apologize. That's true the whole year round. It's actually a Mishnah in Maseches Bovakama. If anyone ever needs to apologize for anything, it's probably something that happened in Bovakama, where all manner of, of damage and, and injury ensues. And, and the, the Mishnah says, in the eighth parak of Bovakama, that if you uh, sinned against your fellow man, you don't get kapara, your tshuva doesn't work until you ask for mechila. So these two points are known. Again, just to, to be clear on these two points. Point one, Yom Kippur doesn't work without tshuva. Point two, tshuva doesn't work without apologizing, if it's been Adam Lachavira. 
Seeing as I already know both of these things, I no longer need a special drasha in the Pasuk to tell me that Yom Kippur doesn't work without making the peace. I know that. Wherefore the necessity for a special drasha? That on Yom Kippur, that is the question. <coughs> and the answer, says Rav Hutner, is that what you're looking to achieve on Yom Kippur is beyond what you're looking to achieve throughout the course of the year. That's why it's the, it, it gets a special drasha. And here is why. If we look at the two, carefully at the, at the phraseology of these two ideas, the requirement to make the peace the whole year round and the requirement to make the peace on Erev Rosh Hashanah, pardon me, Erev Yom Kippur, the two Mishnayas have a different nuance, different, a shift in phraseology. The Mishnah regarding the whole year round in Bava Kama says, your tshuva won't work, ad yivakesh mechila, until you ask for forgiveness. When it comes to Yom Kippur, the Mishnah says, Yom Kippur doesn't work, ad sheyiratze eschavero, until he appeases his friend. And now the question is, what is the difference between asking for mechila, asking for forgiveness, and appeasing your friend. They seem to be two ways of saying the same thing. Says Rav Hutner, they are not. <coughs> the goal throughout the course of the year is if someone has a grievance against you, if someone has uh, some case against you, because you wronged them, you have to apologize so that they no longer have a grievance. They, f- they pardon the grievance. Okay. And that's it. Where from there? No requirements. Or to put it slightly differently, because as we know, sometimes <coughs> you can pardon someone, and you can pardon them, I would say, sincerely. But you're not really interested in having anything to do with them. They're still not going to get invited to your kiddush, and, uh, just because things have cooled off. We say the colloquialism, no hard feelings. No hard feelings, okay? But no hard feelings doesn't always mean that there are, yes, soft feelings. Maybe there's just no feelings at all. Nothing negative, but nothing positive. Zero. Neutral. And it happens to be that that's acceptable in in, in principle, as far as tshuva is concerned. The grievance is gone. Are they your friend again? Not necessarily. Okay. I say that people choose their friends. <coughs> but comes Yom Kippur, and there's a different goal. And where does that goal come from? The Pasuk says, and we're quoting it now for the third time, but the first time in this light, Lifnei Hashem Titaru. You shall be purified, Lifnei Hashem. What is the meaning of the words Lifnei Hashem? The phrase Lifnei Hashem appears a number of times in the Torah. It almost always refers to a place. The, the, there are certain korbanos that are to be eaten Lifnei Hashem. And this is to happen Lifnei Hashem. It's a place. <coughs> now here, on Yom Kippur, Lifnei Hashem is not a place. It's, it's a state. It's a conceptual place. But it's really a state. But it's no different than all of those other usages in the Torah. What do they have in common? All of those places, it's in Yerushalayim, it's in the base Hamikdash, right? That Lefnei Hashem refers to those domains. What typifies their domains? Those domains are accessible and belong to the entire Jewish people. That's what defines Lefnei Hashem as a place. And says Rav Hutner, if that's what defines Lefnei Hashem as a place... That's what defines Lefnei Hashem as a state. The Jewish people need to come together before Hashem. There needs to be place within you for everyone. But that means that there's, there's a certain... It's not just... Neutral is not enough. <coughs> there has to be... <coughs> pardon me. A certain togetherness. Not just forgiveness. Togetherness. When the Jewish people are together... That's called the Jewish people being Lifnei Hashem. And therefore, 
when it, that's why the, the, the Mishnah says over throughout the course of the year, what do you need? Mechila. Achievakesh Mechila. But for Yom Kippur, you need Ritzui. You need Sheyisratzu. That, that, that there should be appeasement to try and get the relationship back on track as far as possible. And that is learned from the Fnei Hashem. We see how differently Rav Hutner explains the, the drosha of Lefnei Hashem than the way we originally said it. We originally explained Lefnei Hashem refers to a type of sin. Lefnei Hashem, you'll get kapara. Benodam lechaveiro, not necessarily. <coughs> but according to Rav Hutner, Lefnei Hashem doesn't refer to a type of sin. It refers to the state that you need to be in, which requires you then to be maratzeh, to appease your fellow, and to, to try and restore, to get the relationship back on track, if not completely, <coughs> at least headed in the right direction. And, th- and now we understand why indeed this is something that people wait for Erev Yom Kippur for. They don't do it over the course of the year, because over the course of the year, you're looking for something different. For the course of the year, you're looking for mechila. I want my pardon, and then, I'm, and then, I'm, and then I'll go. On the Erev Yom Kippur, you're looking for a higher level. You're looking to become Lifnei Hashem. And that's why not only do you apologize, but you also appease on Erev Yom Kippur. A higher level. And the truth is, this may explain to us something else. There is a very interesting episode, which is told in the Gemara, about this very thing. In the end of Masech Azuma, <coughs> Daf Pezayin. Rav, it tells of Rav. And he was learning together in the Beis Medrash, and they started the, the text, and, uh, and, and he begins to learn. All the Tamidim were there. And then, and then someone walks in late. For some people, it's, it's reassuring and perhaps comforting that even in the times of the Gemara, it happened that someone walked in late. So someone walks in late, and so Rav says, okay, you know what? Let's start again from the beginning. And he starts again from the beginning. Then a few minutes later, someone else walks in late. And Rav says, you know what? Let's start again. He starts again. And then Rav Hanina walks in third. And the Gemara says, Rav says, you know, enough is enough. I cannot perpetually be starting again from the beginning. And he did not start again from the beginning for the benefit of Rav Hanina. And the Gemara says, Rav Hanina <coughs> took offense. And, and the Gemara proceeds to say that Rav went to Rav Hanina on Erev Yom Kippur to make the peace. On Erev Yom Kippur. The Sfas Emes raises an interesting shayla. Why should Rav need to make the peace? Why should Rav need to apologize? He came in late. <coughs> it's, not, it's not wrong to carry out. You don't, you don't have to start again from the beginning. So he's not entitled to take offense. And if he's not entitled to take offense, you're not required to apologize. So why did Rav apologize nonetheless? There's no actual grounds for grievance here. And the Sfas Emes gives two answers to this question. <coughs> the first answer is that maybe it's true. Perhaps there is no requirement to start again from the beginning. He shouldn't be offended if he didn't start at the beginning. But if you started again for the first two, so then by contrast, that's a slight. <coughs> you don't have to shake anyone's hand, but if you shake everyone's hand in the room except for one person, so then by contrast... That's, that's a slight. And maybe, there, maybe, therefore, there was grounds for grievance. That's the first answer. If the question is there's no grounds for grievance, maybe there was. But the second answer, <coughs> I believe, is, is, is very fascinating. And that is, says the Sfasemes, you know what? Maybe there was no grounds for grievance. And moreover, on any given day of the year, <coughs> you wouldn't have to apologize. But on Erev Yom Kippur, you should apologize for a grievance, even if it's not real. Even if it's only perceived. <coughs> That's the Chiddush of the Gemara. And I think that the explanation of what the Sfasemis means to say is that throughout the course of the year, it's an issue of mechila. I don't have to ask him for pardon if he has no grounds for being upset in the first place. 
So, the, so the, if the grievance <coughs> is only perceived or imagined, pardon is not required. But that's if the goal is to get pardon. But if the goal is to come together, isn't it true that even if the grievance or the, even if the offense is perceived, even if the offense is imagined, but the grievance is real, that means if a person feels that they've been slighted, then the rift <coughs> that can occur is no less a rift just because it's based on a, mis- uh, on a misunderstanding or, or a mistake on their part. And perhaps, therefore, since we understand that the goal for Erev Yom Kippur is to come together, so that might explain to us why the Svasema says that even if this person was mistaken to take offense, you still should make the peace. Because tachlis, you're not lifnei Hashem, if there's bad feeling. <coughs> and I think there may be room to add one more point, and with that we'll move on to our uh, final discussion. And that is, what about, the, what about the person who's being asked? What about the aggrieved party? The one who, who offended has to ask for forgiveness. Does the one who was offended have to grant forgiveness? And a few moments ago we said, maybe he doesn't, but it's recommended that he does and it's good. He himself is looking for forgiveness. He should grant people forgiveness, but no obligation to forgive. But I wonder if, according to Rav Huttner's analysis, maybe the aggrieved party really is obligated. Again, assuming the apology is sincere, maybe he is obligated to grant forgiveness. Where does that obligation come from? From the very same source that the one needs to apologize. Lifnei Hashem Titaru. Lifnei Hashem Titaru means you need to make room in your heart for everyone. That obligation devolves equally upon the aggrieved party as it does on the aggriever. <coughs> and therefore it could be, in this regard, Lifnei Hashem Titaru dictates that a person really does uh, have an obligation to a certain degree to, to, to rid their heart of any ill feeling and, and, and restore the relationship with their fellow. I'd like to spend the, the final section of our discussion this evening by looking at um, a sentence in the Machsar. And it really is very illuminating to see the, the, the way that Chazal crafted the Nusach of the Tefillah. And I refer to the way that we conclude the middle bracha of the Amida on Yom Kippur. We say, Kiata. Uh, Salchan li Yisrael umachalan le shivtei Yishurun bechol dor vador. Right, that's we say that every single tefillah. Kiatas salchan Yisrael, you forgive Yisrael umachalan le shivtei Yishurun, and you forgive the tribes of Yishurun bechol dor vador. And no less than the Meshachachma raises the question: What is behind this double phraseology? You forgive Yisrael, you forgive shivtei Yishurun, and we were going to say this a number of times. It should, it should uh, occupy our attention. After all, <laughs> who are Shivta Yishurun? They make up the Jewish people. So Yisrael c- comprises Shivta Yishurun. It's two ways of saying the same thing. Why the double phraseology? And Meshachachma explains. In truth, there are two sins, one could say, that uh, haunt us throughout the generations. One of them is in the realm of Ben Adam Lamakum, back again, Ben Adam Lamakum between man and God, and one Ben Adam Lachavira. We'll say what they are, and then we'll see how they, they persist somehow. The archetypical, or the, the, the seminal, one could say, sin, Ben Adam Lamakum, for the Jewish people, is the Cheta Egal. It was their first national Avera, Ben Adam Lamakum, very clearly between man and God. And, and the Pasuk even says that it was never fully forgiven. And the, the, the Gemara says in Masechah Sanhedrin, there is no generation which doesn't taste something of the retribution for the Cheta Egal. It's a, what they call slow release, seemingly. But corresponding to that is another sin, also pr- committed in a formative time. This one in the realm in Adam Lachavera. And what is that? The sale of Yosef. And there too, the Medrash says, not in the Gemara, <coughs> it's in the Medrash Mishle, 
that in each generation the sin of Mechiras Yosef continues. The, 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 the retribution continues. What are we to make of all of this and why is it so? Says Meshachachma, because in a sense, these represent, you could call, the, the, the root offenses for which every subsequent offense committed by the Jewish people or by a Jewish person, in a sense, is a reopening of that original problem, of that root problem. It's almost like a relapse or a reopening. <coughs> that means that any offense in the realm of bin Adam la Mokum, committed at any time, in a sense, it's, it, means, it means there hasn't been a complete healing from the original sin of the Chet Egel. And, <coughs> and any infraction in the area of bin Adam la Chavero means there hasn't been a full healing of Mechiras Yosef. That's why the punishment persists, because the symptoms persist. There's reiterations and, and, and reverberations. So, comes Yom Kippur. And what is the goal of Yom Kippur? An absolute cleansing, as far as possible, all the way to the root. And it's for this reason, interestingly, <coughs> and, and, and the, the way to express it, is that on Yom Kippur we're looking to address the wrongs committed this past year all the way back to these two root Averas. In the realm of between man and God, all the way back to the Chet Egel, Between man and man, all the way back to Chet Mechiras Yosef. An absolute healing. With the hope that we, that we don't relapse again. <coughs> and we can hope. No, no better time to hope than Yom Kippur itself. It's very interesting. We see that, that, that the Chet Egel. Is a, is a living presence that we're conscious of on Yom Kippur. How so? <coughs> because the very sensitive avodos of those inner korbanos, they're performed with the Kohen Gadol wearing only white. He changes into only white. He doesn't wear his normal big day kahuna. One would have thought one should have the full regalia. After all, you want to be dressed for success. You want, you want to assure maximum success and so wear maximum big day kahuna. But the halacha says, no, only white. What's wrong with the others? Says, says the Gemara, they have gold in them. <coughs> when you're doing those super sensitive avodas of, of Yom Kippur to, to get atonement for the Jewish people, you don't want to be wearing gold. Why? Ein kategor nases sanegor. Gold is the prosecution. There is a minhag, interestingly, that people do not wear gold even now. And uh, many women have a, have a minhag. Uh, they don't wear golden uh, jewelry on Yom Kippur. That's, that's quite an established minhag. I did see, uh, I forgot to, 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 to <laughs> trace back who said it, but there are those who say <coughs> that women can wear gold on Yom Kippur because women were not involved in the Chet Egel. It's a man who shouldn't wear a gold watch. A woman can wear a gold bracelet. So I'm not, I'm not advocating anyone to change their midnight, but if you see in the women's section somewhere wearing gold, presumably that's how they paskin. Either way. So the Kohen Godel doesn't wear gold on Yom Kippur because, because gold is a prosecution, so says the Gemara, and enters Meshachachma and says, you know what else? Those avodas are done in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Why? Because the Gemara tells us the territory of the Besamikdash was divided. Some of it was in the territory of Yehuda. Some of it was in the territory of Binyamin. The Kodesh HaKadoshim is in the territory of Binyamin. You know why he goes into the Kodesh HaKadoshim? <coughs> we would have thought, it's the holiest place. Nothing more to explain. But Meshachachma says, no. On Yom Kippur, when you want to get atonement, you need to be in the domain of the only brother who was not involved in the sale of Yosef. That's Binyamin. It's what they would call in our parlance, a safe space. And so you see how these two go together. Only white and no gold to avoid the kitrug, <coughs> the accusation of the gold of, of Cheta Egal. You're in the territory of Binyamin so as, to, so as to be safe from the accusation of, uh, of Chet Mechiras Yosef. And therefore, says, says Meshachachma, this is why, it's amazing just to, just to it's chinuch it's in how to look at the machzor. Says Meshachachma, that's why we conclude the blessing by saying, Ki atas solchan li Yisrael, 
Umachalan the Shivta Yeshurun. You forgive Yisrael and you forgive Shivta Yeshurun. Why do we divide them into two? We asked, is there not two ways of saying the same thing? Says Meshachachma, no, it is not. These <coughs> refer to the two root Averos that we're looking to trace the healing all the way back to. The first is you forgive Yisrael. That, that refers to the Cheta Egel, Eile Elohecha Yisrael, which was committed by the Jewish people as a nation. That's the one. And then the second, Umachalan the Shivta Yishurin, and you forgive also Shivta Yishurin. Why would we refer to the Jewish people as Shivta Yishurin? Because it's talking about the sale of Yosef, which was committed by the Shivta Yishurin. And therefore, this is the, the dual expression of Yisrael and Shifta Yishurin refers to these two areas that we're looking to fully, fully uh, heal as much as we can. So says Meshachachma. Mi yavo achar hamelech. One doesn't ever feel that, that there is what to say after someone like the Meshachachma has spoken. And yet, I feel perhaps there is what to say. There is what to add. And I would suggest as follows. Meshachachma has explained to us the, the, the two phrases, Salchan the Yisrael refers to Cheta Egel. Machlan the Shivta Yishurun refers to Mechiras Yosef, the sale of Yosef. And that's why they're divided into two. <coughs> Let us ask then a follow up question. Why is it with regards to Yisrael we use the term Slicha, Salchan the Yisrael? And with regards to Shivta Yishurun we use the term Mechila. What is behind that, uh, the apportioning of those verbs? Which, of course, draws us into the question, what is the difference between slicha and mechila? We, we, we always know that these words, often they, they travel in clusters. And, and we, we need to understand this, the specific hue and color uh, of each one. <coughs> there is no such thing as two words that mean exactly the same thing. What, then, is the difference between slicha and mechila? And this question is, is raised and discussed by one of the great Litvisha Gedolim of the 1800s. His name is Rabbi Yeshua Heller. And he has a sefer called Based Villa, And he explains as follows. And it really opens up for us the whole concept of tshuva. How so? Every mitzvah and every avera really contain within them two elements. We'll begin with mitzvahs. Every mitzvah contains within it two elements. They are, number one, the, the act itself is a spiritual, spiritually beneficial act. It is naturally the nature of the act as it contains a spiritual benefit. That is even aside from the fact that Hashem is commanding the person to do it. The act itself, the properties and qualities <coughs> of the act bring spiritual benefit. Additionally, there is the fact that Hashem commands the person to do it, which then has the element of responding to Hashem's command. These are two different things. One is what you could call spirituality, and one is what you could call religion. <coughs> we find, for example, the Avos, they kept all of the mitzvahs before being commanded. If we may ask, how did they know what the mitzvahs were? And perhaps you could answer, well, maybe they somehow got a preview into the Torah, or, or who knows what. But Rabbi Yeshua Heller says, no, they did not have a preview into the Torah. But they had a level of spiritual sensitivity whereby they naturally intuited which acts are good for them and which acts are not. Because those properties exist within mitzvahs and avims. <coughs> in other words, what are tariq mitzvahs, says Rabbi Shuhayla? Tariq mitzvahs are the 613 habits of highly successful spiritual people. We refer to both of these elements when we make a bracha. We say, Asher Kiddishanu B'mitzvosav, V'tzivanu. Kiddishanu B'mitzvosav, you sanctify us through the mitzvah, refers to the, pro- the sanctifying property of the act. V'tzivanu is the dynamic of the command. But if that's true, <coughs> then if a person should do something wrong, if he should violate a commandment, he's actually done two things wrong. Whenever, you, whenever someone does one thing wrong, he does two things wrong. Number one, he's damaged himself. He's engaged in a spiritually deleterious act. Spiritually damaging act. And secondly, he's disrupted. He's caused a rupture in his relationship with Hashem. He's he's violated the the, the command of Hashem. Which means that when we come to do tshuva, we're looking to repair both of those things. And that's the difference between slicha 
and mechila. Slicha is forgiveness. And forgiveness, slicha, relates to the spiritual rehabilitation. If we've damaged ourselves, we ask Hashem to fix us up. Mechila is pardon. It's about a relationship responding to command. That's why we say in Shemona Yisrei, Slach lano avinu ki chatanu. We ask for slicha for chataim. Chataim are unintentional. So the, so the issue there is not that you disobeyed Hashem's command. You didn't, it's unintentional, but the effect could still be there. So we ask for slicha there. <coughs> That's the focus. To fix us from any damage done by the spiritually damaging act. For pesha, which is rebellion, we ask for mechila. Because pardon, that's in the issue of rebellion. How does all of this relate to us? The difference between the Chet Egel and the Chet of Mechiras Yosef lies in exactly in this point. The sin of selling Yosef did not actually achieve the damage that the brothers wanted to. They wanted to cut Yosef out from the, from the Jewish people entirely. They did not succeed. Yosef himself says to them, you intended it for the bad. Hashem brought it back for the good. So the damage they intended didn't happen. But they did intend to do effectively the wrong thing. <coughs> so their wrongdoing is in the realm of intention. Are they, do they, are they okay to do the wrong thing? And they were. Obviously, we're oversimplifying, but that, that if yes or no, yes. With regards to the miraculum, the opposite is the, pardon me, with regards to the Cheta Egel, the opposite is the case. The Egel began with good intentions, as Ramban says. That's why it's called a Chet. It, it's downward spiraled into terrible things. But the, at the inception, it was done as a way of somehow receiving messages from Hashem to, he should guide them through the desert, etc. <coughs> it just deteriorated from that point. So, so we see that these two Averos, the, the sensitive point of wrongdoing is different in them. For the, for, the, for the Cheta Egel, it's in the result, not in the intention. For the, for the sale of Yosef, it's in the intention and not in the result. And maybe now we understand why we're coming back to our line in the Machso, we say, Ki ata salchan li Yisrael. Meshachachma told us that this refers to Yisrael who made the Cheta Egel. But if the main problem with the Cheta Egel was the, the effect and the result, not, the, not a rebellious intention per se, so there we ask for slicha, rehabilitation from the effect, like a chet. <coughs> Conversely, when it comes to the shivta yeshurin, which refers to the, the sale of Yosef, there the problem is their intent, not in the act. So there they need more pardon than they need forgiveness. They need more pardon for the relationship than they do forgiveness for, for the damage, because in the end their damage was done. And that's why, while we talk about slicha for Yisrael, we talk about mechila, for Shivta Yishurin. I think that is a worthy addition to, <coughs> to what the, the Meshachachma began. And all of, us leads, all of this leads us with one final question. And that is, <coughs> where did Kapara go? We're, 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 we've divided everything into two. Slicha and Mechila. What about Kapara? It is Yom Kippur. We've explained what Slicha is and what Mechila is. So what is Kapara? And what's left for Kapara? After all, Slicha and Mechila between the two of them take care of everything. The relationship is, has been taken care of. <coughs> the rupture has been taken care of. The, the, the damage has been taken care of. What then is kapar? But I think this takes us to the heart of Yom Kippur. Because as we know, and this really ties into our discussion with Adam Lachaviro, <coughs> it's possible to fix things. It's possible to apologize. It's possible to have a pardon. But the offense is still in the air. It's still there. It doesn't really go away. It's, it's an ever-present thing. You're never indicted for it, but it doesn't go away. Kapara means to wipe away. That's what the word lechaper means. Rashi says in Parshas Vayishlach. And what does it mean? It means slicha and mechila deal with the problems, but they're still, they're still present as problems that were dealt with. <coughs> Yom Kippur wipes them away. The relationship can begin. Historically, they're true, but atmospherically, they don't need to be present. Not in any damaging way. That's the gift of Yom Kippur. The relationship is back on track. As surely as Ben Adam Lechaveiro requires Yiratzes Chaveiro, the relationship is back on track. So to our relationship with Hashem. Slicha and Mechila means grievances have been, have been addressed. But Kapara means the relationship has been restored. That's all wiped away. It's done with. 
and everything starts again from the beginning again. And that really is the gift of Yom Kippur. And so as we say, uh, which we say you know, so often of Yom Kippur, that's really what we're saying. Stage one, fix us up. Stage two, pardon us. And stage three, to wipe the whole thing away. That's, that is the opportunity that is waiting for us uh, on the Yuma, on the day that uh, is really just a few hours away. And so, should all be Zoha, <coughs> us and Kol Beis Yisrael, Teslicha and Mechila and Kapara to a good good bench to Yor, and we should have a Yer Baseros Tovis, Leklal Ulifrat.